1: It's Monday the 9th of August, 1954, and despite it being a cold winter's night, Sydney hotspot Checkers is in full swing. Downstairs at 183 Pitt Street, Checkers bills itself as Australia's nightclub deluxe and offers English and Chinese meals until 3am. Better still, it's one of the few places in Sydney you can have liquor served at your table. Provided that is you pre-order it with your dinner booking. Each night there are three floor shows featuring two bands and a bevy of beautiful dancing girls. And now at eleven fifty p.m. the second of those shows has finished, and a man and woman climb the club stairs to street level. He's young, mid twenties, handsome, wearing a good suit with silk shirt and tie. She's well-dressed, but twice his age, and, at a glance, seems more likely to be his mother than his date. Despite the gaiety of the club, these two seem serious as they step onto Pitt Street, him walking ahead of her. A taxi driver waiting for fares asks, Do you want a cab, mate? His reply, No thanks. The cabbie now sees why. The young man's walking to a black sedan, a Ford console model, parked at the curb near the corner of King and Pitt Streets. He walks up to the car and leans down at the rear passenger window to talk to someone sitting inside the darkened vehicle. A shot rings out. The man falls away from the car and lands on his back on the footpath. The cabbie rushes to his side. Straight away, he sees there's nothing he can do for this bloke who's been shot just above the left eye. Whatever life's left in him is quickly ebbing away with the blood that pours from his nose and pools around him on the city footpath. The cabbie's attention goes to the woman who left checkers just seconds ago with the now dying man as she cries out, Why did you do it? She's asking the question of a young woman in the back seat of the Ford Consul, a beauty whose model good looks are familiar from the pages of Sydney's newspapers. I'm Michael Adams and this is the first of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Model and the Murder Case. These days, modelling in Australia is a lucrative business. There are dozens of agencies, both big and boutique, and thousands of models make their livings walking at fashion shows and posing for print catalogues and advertisements, billboard campaigns and television and internet commercials. But in the middle of the 20th century, being a model, or mannequin as they were also then called, was a very niche occupation. The biggest name in the 1930s had been Margaret Viner, But after she became famous margaret went to live in england and australia's nascent modeling industry went into hibernation when world war ii began and money for advertising dried up as allied victory approached and the non-war related economy began its recovery young women were again able to get work modeling in fashion shows at department stores and in print articles and advertisements Newspapers were all too happy to run photos of these pretty young things, even more so if the pictures promoted products from advertisers, and this exposure turned the models into minor celebrities. The most successful was Sydney's June Dally Watkins, who from 1945 onwards was increasingly in the public eye and who ended the decade as Australia's most photographed model. This young beauty also had a brain for business, and in early 1950, she established the June Dally Watkins School for Deportment. Within months, it was Australia's leading academy and agency for models, with three of its graduates filling the top three places in that year's Miss Australia quest. Among the first hopefuls to come through June's doors for a formal eight-week course that covered subjects such as makeup, grooming, wearing clothes for fashion shows and posing for the photographer was a striking young blonde named Shirley Beja. Fresh-faced, with a dazzling smile, Shirley stood 5'6 and had a 34-25-35 figure and weighed eight stone, nine pounds. In other words, she was just the sort of girl that fashion designers wanted to model their clothes and photographers wanted to pose for their cameras. On the pretty face of things, Shirley seemed to already be living a bit of a charmed life. She'd gone to the exclusive Sydney Church of England Girls Grammar School and afterwards taken a job in an office before trying her hand at hairdressing. Then, she'd landed a job at the Orchid Bar at the city's David Jones department store, with this leading to her first offer of modelling work when she was just 17. But Shirley hadn't actually come from a privileged background. Instead, she'd grown up in a tumultuous family environment in Sydney's working-class inner southern suburbs. Her father, Maurice Beja, was born in 1897 and had been raised amid these battlers. In 1918, he married a woman named Mona Barlow and they had a son they called Maurice Junior. But this boy died as an infant and the marriage ended in divorce in October 1928. The following year, Maurice married 25-year-old Edith Macaulay, who'd also grown up around the Redfern and Botany area. The couple had two sons, Jack and William, before Edith gave birth to their only daughter, Shirley Patricia Bezier, in March 1932. The following year's electoral roll, as found on Ancestry.com.au, shows the family living at Sutherland Street mascot and that Maurice was supporting his wife and three young children as a fellmonger. That is, a worker whose job it is to remove fur from and to prepare animal skins. It was hard and not particularly well paid work, with life made more difficult that year by a bitter strike in botany's felmongering yards that led to plants being closed and workers losing their jobs. But Maurice managed to stay employed in his trade, and over the next few years, the family lived at various mascot locations before moving farther south to a house in Taralba Road, Brighton Les Sands, which was just a stone's throw from the beach and waters of Botany Bay. Maurice now listed himself as a laborer. Edith was also contributing to the family coffers, Not that she was likely to list her job on any electoral roll. Around the middle of 1941, when Shirley was nine years old, her mum was arrested, charged and fined for selling illegal alcohol to her neighbours. But Edith kept on flogging Sly Grog and she was arrested again in November 1941 for selling three quarts of beer, that is, about three litres, for the princely sum of 7 shillings and 6 pence. This time Edith's court appearance was covered by the Sun newspaper under the headline, quote, "No fun in 100 pound fine." Edith told the court, quote, "I don't get any pleasure out of selling beer." She claimed she'd only committed this most recent crime to pay the fine incurred by her previous crime. Edith's £100 fine, simply adjusted for inflation, is about $8,000 today, somewhat out of proportion for charging the equivalent of $30 for beer. Because Edith couldn't cough up £100, she went to jail for a brief period. Home life for the Beja kids soon became even less certain when, just weeks after their mother's court appearance, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour and their father Maurice enlisted in the Australian Army. To keep the family going, Edith, after another sly grog offence, went on the straight and narrow and got a job managing a grocery store in Redfern. Maurice was discharged from the Army in February 1944, suffering an ulcer and nerves and receiving a veteran's pension. Just a month after being discharged from the Army, Maurice beat up Edith and faced assault charges in Paddington Court. Displaying its usual flippancy about domestic violence, the Truth newspaper, which thrived on sordid relationship stories, headlined its article... Quote, Slugged for being silent. Their report began by focusing on Edith's appearance. Quote, Buxom, good-looking Edith Beja had been ignoring her husband for 12 months, so she was mute when he arrived home and addressed conversation to her on March 13. His response was to punch her on the face and body. She declared at Paddington Court last week. Edith, Redfern manager of Laken's Limited, said she was cooking tea for the children when Maurice Andrew came in drunk and socked her. She packed her ports and took up abode with her brother at Alexander Street, Coogee. In court, Edith admitted three convictions for illegally selling booze, but claimed, quote, "'Anything I have done, my husband has been at the back of it. The sly grog selling was started by my husband.'" Maurice denied any such involvement, and he denied assaulting his wife. He said he'd simply asked her about unpaid gas bills. When she didn't respond, he'd tapped her on the shoulder. Then Edith had been the aggressor. Quote, she had a fork in her hand and turned round in a wild rage to jab me in the face, so I backpedaled as fast as I could. The judge didn't believe Maurice and recorded a conviction against him, fining him one pound. So for beating Edith, he got one one hundredth of the penalty she'd copped for selling a few litres of beer. The couple's next mention in court was in June 1946, when they finalised their divorce. Despite Maurice's treatment of Edith, Shirley, now a teenager, lived with her father at this time. She kept house for him, went to school at Skeggs and most afternoons visited her mother at the small goods store she now owned in Redfern. Given Maurice was on a war pension, it would appear that Edith's business was profitable enough for her to afford private school fees. After finishing school, Shirley moved in with Edith above the Redfern shop. Shirley paid her way by working in an office and as a hairdresser before getting that job at the David Jones Orchid Bar that led to her first modelling offer. Readers of the Sun newspaper on the 15th of July 1949 were treated to a fetching photo of Shirley wearing a swimsuit to illustrate an article about the goodly number of entrants for that year's Miss Press Photographer contest. Shirley loved the experience, saying later, quote, "After my first modeling job, I knew this was the kind of life I wanted." Edith arranged for Shirley to go to June Daly Watkins School, with Shirley recalling, quote, "I was still shy and self-conscious and the school had to put a lot of polish on me." The Polish worked and Sydney newspapers were soon running photos of Shirley as an entrant in both the Miss New South Wales and Miss Australia quests. As an entrant, Shirley took part in fashion shows at various theatres and town halls that saw her and other competitors congenially raise funds for each other's campaigns and for charities. In November 1950, the 53 Miss New South Wales candidates faced their big moment, parading at the Trocadero nightclub in frocks and swimsuits for judges. There were 12 finalists, but Shirley wasn't one of them. Nevertheless, her face and figure were increasingly seen in newspapers and magazines. The nationally distributed Pix magazine on the 14th of April 1951 ran a full-length photo of Shirley as part of their Girl of the Year quest and gave her a three-pound, three-shilling prize. Two weeks later, she was the cover girl for Pix, posing demurely with a trio of wire-haired terrier puppies. The next month, Shirley and three other models took Trans-Oceanic Airways' inaugural flying boat service from Sydney to Port Moresby. In a whirlwind 24 hours, the girls toured villages, hospitals and schools and attended a cocktail party where they were the only women among 200 men. Photos of Shirley playing with a Papuan baby, chatting with Papuan women in grass skirts appeared in newspapers all over the country. Shirley was on hand in mid-1951 to pose with expat Aussie comedian Dick Bentley at Bondi Beach, and she was back there in a swimsuit in November when Truth needed an eye-catching photo for an article about the hot weather. On the 11th of January 1952, Shirley and another of June Daly Watkins' stars, beauty Jeanette Elphick, modelled summer frocks and swimsuits at the Grace Brothers store in Parramatta. A few weeks later, the two girls appeared together again, this time promoting Ford's new model sedan, the Consul. As the camera clicked, with Shirley posing beside the car while Jeanette smiled from the driver's window, there was no way these young beauties could have imagined the dramatically different paths their lives would take in the next few years. Side note, I'll be exploring what the future held for Jeanette Elfic in an upcoming bonus episode.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As 1952
1: progressed, Shirley's profile increased. She made the top 10 finalists of that year's Miss New South Wales Quest was photographed taking tips from Britain's highest-paid model, Barbara Golan, when she visited Sydney, and Shirley and other Miss Australia hopefuls flew with TAA to take part in fashion parades in Canberra, Queanbeyan and Cooma. Unlike today, modelling then wasn't highly paid, with Shirley getting a pound or two for a photo shoot. But she was doing okay. Quote, I was very lucky and managed to get enough work to keep me going. And it was fun. Quote, I was soon invited to go to places that had just been glamorous sounding names to me and found my life changing. I spent more time on my looks and clothes. I worked most of the day and at night there was always somewhere new and exciting to go. That visit to Kuma in the snowy mountains was especially funny when Shirley and her friends turned up at a venue to model only to find the audience comprised exclusively of men working the hydroelectric scheme. These blokes weren't there for the frocks and shouted, Bring on the dancing girls! Shirley recalled, quote, So, three of the girls did the can can, and I sang. I haven't any voice at all, really. Last time I had sung was in the school choir, but I was cheered and encored so much that night I imagined I was Melba. In May 1952, when doing an article for The Sun about how modern men were failing at romance, the paper's reporter sought out Shirley as an expert commentator. She reported that only one of her boyfriends had ever regularly bought her flowers. Quote, But he went from the sublime to the ridiculous and brought me flowers every time he came and in the end I was looking for places to put them. Shirley also complained that young men were too concerned with their freedom to pay their girlfriends small chivalrous attentions. Quote, He's mostly frightened frightened she'll think she's the only one in his life and frightened about what the boys would think or say. She told this reporter that, as a modern girl, she would expect to see her permanent boyfriend or fiancé four to five times per week. Quote, "...and when he had dates with me, I wouldn't expect him to want to dash off for a drink with the boys." I'd like him to take me out mostly in a twosome because in parties of any larger number, the boys always tend to get into a huddle and talk football or something. Shirley was also critical of boys who were too lazy to learn how to dance. Quote, There's nothing worse than going to a nightclub and having to sit out dances and drink the whole time. If they consider girls' feelings a bit, they just wouldn't do this. On the 21st of March, 1953, Shirley celebrated her 21st birthday at the Mascot Town Hall with her mother paying for a party of 200 guests, the birthday girl pretty in a blue nylon dress appliqued with blue lace. But while this was a night Shirley would treasure, she'd also by now had enough of living with Edith above the shop in Redfern. Her mum's business had been broken into, and its proximity to the police station also meant that day and night there were all sorts of brawls and disturbances. To preserve her nerves, and on the advice of a doctor, Shirley moved out and took her own flat in Kellett Street, King's Cross, which was then still more of a bohemian enclave than a red-light district. One of Shirley's neighbours was a young man named Donald Lee, who worked as a waiter at the Checkers nightclub in the city. It was through Don that Shirley met handsome young Arthur Griffith. Arthur was 23 years old, the son of a well-known Sydney bookmaker, and he worked with his dad as a clerk. Arthur loved the good life, and he treated Checkers nightclub as his second home. Shirley and Arthur were quickly head over heels in love. They enjoyed playing golf and swimming together and going to the pictures, and as they spent more and more time together, he spent fewer and fewer nights in his own bed in his family home at Rosebury. For all intents and purposes, Arthur had moved in with Shirley. Living in sin, as it was called, was then shameful. For this reason, Shirley increasingly kept to herself, socialising with Arthur's friends who knew their secret, and avoiding hers, who she thought might be scandalised by her immorality. Shirley also apparently kept their living arrangements secret from Edith. Arthur did the same by telling his parents that when he wasn't at their place, he was sleeping at Don's. Shirley and Arthur were in a serious relationship, but they weren't going to marry, at least not yet. Before settling down, he wanted to go on an overseas trip, and this was a dream that Shirley said she understood and respected. Now that she was with Arthur, Shirley didn't do as much modelling, but she maintained a steady income with work as a receptionist. Even so, Shirley still made the newspapers from time to time. In June 1953, Jim McDougall, front-page columnist for The Sun, who we met in the episode Soul Survivor, ran an item about the visiting American all-star football team who'd told a radio announcer that they hadn't met any of the city's famed beauties. So this DJ organised a party for them at a club called The Celebrity. Under the headline, Meet the Girls, McDougall reported, There'll be a galaxy of stars more brilliant than the astronomer ever saw. In fact, the whole top draw of the modelling world in Sydney. On the roll call of beauties were June Dully Watkins and Shirley Bezier. The following November, Jim McDougal reported on the Sydney opening of the new Marilyn Monroe film. Quote, All the blondes about the place flocked to the Regent for the premiere of "Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Shirley Bezier, one of our most attractive blonde models, was there, her hair jet black at the moment. Just before Christmas 1953, Shirley took an unusual modelling job at the second Ideal Homes exhibition at Sydney's Town Hall. She and another model were engaged... To promote pricey mattresses by sleeping in them eight hours a day, wearing 90s, of course. The Sun newspaper on the 14th of December ran Shirley's photo with the headline, quote, The Softest Job in Town. But it wasn't really. Three days later, the newspaper, under their headline, They'd Make Model Wives, reported that the women had received a dozen marriage proposals between them. Shirley told the Sun, quote, It is a very tiring job. So many men wake us up to try to make a date or make proposals of various kinds. As 1954 rolled around, Shirley dropped out of the newspapers and magazines, devoting herself to keeping house and looking after her man. But Shirley Beige's name and face would be in newspapers and magazines everywhere after she shot and killed Arthur Griffith outside Chequers' nightclub in the middle of Sydney. There was no doubt that Shirley had done it. The question was, Why? With Arthur Griffith on his back, blood flowing onto the footpath, brain destroyed by a bullet, taxi driver John Rowland saw that the Ford Consul's rear passenger door was open, and Shirley Bezier was sitting in the back with a 22 caliber repeating rifle resting across her knees. Her mother, Edith, took this gun as Shirley got out of the car and ran to her dying lover's side, kneeling beside him crying, I shot Arthur! I shot Arthur! Everything after that happened in a bit of a blur. The taxi driver took the rifle from Edith and set it on the back seat. He then ran into checkers and told staff to call the police and ambulance. Soon after, a hysterical Shirley also dashed into the club, wailing to Donald Lee, quote, Donnie, Donnie, I've hurt Arthur. Then Shirley returned to the street, where a crowd of around 50 people had gathered. The first police officer on the scene saw Arthur's body and, hearing what had happened, ordered Shirley and Edith to stay where they were. But they didn't. As other police cars arrived, they left the scene of the crime. Hurrying along Pitt Street, they encountered Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett, one of Sydney's most experienced and toughest cops, who was responding to the call about a shooting. Blissett asked, Do you know what happened back there? The younger of the two women seemed agitated, and she asked, Is he alright? Blissett said he didn't know, and again asked what happened. Shirley Bezier blurted out the truth. Quote, I shot him. With what? asked Blissett. A rifle, she replied. Shirley and Edith were taken to Central Police Station. There, according to Blissett, Shirley repeatedly asked if Arthur was all right and whether she could see him. The detective sergeant didn't give her any information about Arthur's condition other than to say that she couldn't see him. Blissett asked Shirley what had happened, and by his account, she made this statement. Quote, Tonight Arthur told me he had to go to the dentist, but he had on his best clothes and I thought it was funny. I went to checkers and saw his truck. I rang mummy and we saw him come down King Street with a girl on his arm and go in. I went in and told him it was all off. Then mummy drove me home. I went into Don Lee's room, got a rifle, put it together, and put a bullet in the little hole in the side. I hid it under my coat, got his golf sticks, and mummy drove me to Checkers. I told her to go and tell him to come up and get his things. He came out and said, what's wrong? I wanted him to come home. He pushed me, and the rifle went off. Blissett asked, When you took this rifle, did you intend to shoot him? Shirley replied, No, I only intended to frighten him by showing him the rifle. Blissit asked the obvious, If you did not intend to shoot him, why did you load it? Shirley said, I don't know. I was so upset. I was prepared to do anything. Blissett asked Edith for her account of the evening, which matched Shirley's, including that she'd supposedly seen Arthur lean into the car and push her daughter just before the shot rang out. Edith told the detective Shirley had then said to her, quote, I didn't mean to do anything. He pushed me. I was only going to frighten him. Blissett now informed the women that Arthur Griffith was dead, and he asked Shirley to give a written statement. Shirley refused and Edith backed her daughter up saying she'd already told the truth. Now Blissett formally charged Shirley Bezier with the murder of her lover Arthur Griffith and she was taken to a cell. Shortly afterwards, Shirley called Central Police Station's matron and said, I would like a pencil and paper to write a statement while it is still fresh in my memory. Strangely, What she then wrote was addressed to Arthur, as though this was a letter to her dead lover. This is what Shirley wrote. Quote, Arthur. I came home from work and Arthur and Don were sitting in the flat talking. Arthur said he had to go to the dentist at quarter to six. He went on to Don's and I heard him say to Don that he would see him down at work he put on his best suit and a silk shirt and tie. I knew then he wasn't going to the dentist and I was hurt to think he had lied to me. I had put the heater on and warmed all his clothes before he put them on so he wouldn't be cold. I wanted to believe he was going to the dentist because I didn't want to know that he was lying to me. He stayed with me for a time and we talked about all the things we were going to do. I guess he must have felt a bit guilty about what he was doing as he talked about things he had never talked about before, and I was happy just being with him and hearing him talk that way. Then he went, and I started thinking he had been going out until all hours so often of late, and when I asked him where he had been, he would say, with the boys. Shirley's statement continued. I just had to be sure, so I went to see if he really had gone to the dentist, and I couldn't find his car, so I went down to Checkers, and there I saw his car. I stood and waited. After about 10 minutes, he came out and got in his car and drove off. I got into a cab and went all over town to the places I knew he went to, and I found him at Sammy Lee's. I waited on the bus seat and saw him come out and drive off. I guessed he had gone back to Checkers, so I went there. His car was parked in King Street. I walked about waiting for him until a quarter past eight, and then I guessed what had happened. He'd had dinner at Chequers and gone to a show. I knew then that he was not alone. Shirley went on. I went out to Coogee in a cab and asked my mother if she would come and sit with me in town as I wanted to see for myself if Arthur was with another girl. We sat and waited, and I prayed that he would be by himself, but at 11, he walked down King Street with this girl. I didn't know what to do. I felt sick to see the man who had been in bed with me only a few hours before, telling me he loved me and wanted to marry me when he came back from overseas and saying how he would tell our children about what he wanted them to be like. And here he was, walking arm in arm with another girl, and when he was finished with her, he would come home to me. I was just the girl who washed his clothes, cooked his food and ran after him doing all odd jobs. Even cleaned his shoes so he would be nice for other girls. I even understood when he said he was sorry about not being able to take me to nightclubs as he was short of money. So I was content to stay at home and let him go out with the boys while I waited for him to come home when he had nowhere else to go. I guess I just loved him too much. Shirley continued. When I saw him with this other girl, I guess I knew what a fool I was. I raced down to the club and asked him for the key to the room and told him to come and get his things. Mummy and I walked off and left him, but when I arrived home, I knew that no matter what he had done, I still loved him and wanted him back. I went and rang up and they said he had gone. I went back to the flat and waited while Mummy went back to see if he had gone. When she came back and told me he was still there, I just wanted to see him, so I said I was going to take all his things down there and throw them on the dance floor. When I went back to the room, I couldn't take his things away. I saw some guns in the corner and remembered Don had a gun, so I decided I would take it with me and tell him if he didn't come home with me, I would shoot myself i had seen don put the gun together so i put it together and put a bullet in where i thought it should go i was just going to fire the gun and frighten him as i knew he would not leave me alone if he thought i would do anything silly mummy went in and got him and he came to the car and wanted to know what i wanted i asked him to come home and he said he would later i guess he must have thought he had won again He put his head through the window and said he would be home later and gave me a push the way he always does when we have had words and he knows that he has won. I must have still been holding the gun because the next thing I knew he was lying on the ground covered in blood. They brought me to the station and they told me Arthur was dead. I still can't believe it as he was so alive this afternoon. I didn't want him hurt. I loved him too much to see him hurt, but I guess he will never hurt again, will he? I still love you, signed Shirley Bezier. This statement was brought to Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett at 2.30 a.m. Reading it, he saw that, on paper, in her own handwriting, Shirley had confessed that, enraged by her lover's apparent infidelity, she'd deliberately gone and gotten a gun, assembled and loaded it, and then taken it to a confrontation that she had engineered. Then, having forgotten she was holding the weapon, it had gone off accidentally because Arthur had given her a push. But this written statement contradicted what she'd initially told Blissett, that she'd only intended to frighten Arthur by showing him the gun. The statement that she had considered shooting herself, that she maybe had been going to fire the rifle to frighten Arthur, went some way to explaining why she'd loaded the gun. But it didn't explain why Blissett had found six more 22 caliber bullets in Shirley's pocket. And her absent mindedly having the rifle laying across her lap didn't explain what the coroner would soon determine that the bullet had entered Arthur's face at a 10 degree angle, which suggested the rifle had been held level with the window rather than angled up from her lap. Further, an accidental discharge from a rifle on her lap didn't explain the powder burns and smoke staining around the bullet hole which the coroner would say indicated Arthur had been shot from a range of two to six inches. Later that morning, having gone to Shirley's flat, Blissett showed her the two rifles that had been in Arthur's possession. He asked, quote, if you only intended to frighten your boyfriend, why didn't you take one of them? Shirley's reply, he said, was, quote, Because I didn't know how to use them. There was no doubt in Ray Blissett's mind that Shirley Bezier was lying. Shirley hadn't been wearing a coat when she was arrested and Blissett believed that she'd hidden the rifle in the golf bag among the golf clubs. Then she'd retrieved it as Arthur approached the car, which negated the idea that she'd absentmindedly had it beneath her coat. And he thought she'd taken the .22 over the other guns not just because she knew how to use it, but because it was smaller and easier to hide. In Detective Sergeant Ray Blissett's opinion, This was an open and shut case. In a fit of jealousy, Shirley Bezier had planned and carried out the murder of her lover, Arthur Griffith. Simple as that. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The second and final part of The Model and the Murder Case is on the way, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's released. In the meantime, you can help Forgotten Australia reach more people by leaving a review or rating at iTunes and by telling a friend or two about the show. For more information about Shirley Bezier and other stories, visit ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people.